in his inimitable way is prodding his audience to pay attention and realizes that even as history marches on, the same battles are still being fought. David Sims of The Atlantic talking about Spike Lee's Defy Bloods. Hooray! Movie star fans got a new movie, and it's one from America's great directors in Spike Lee. We're reviewing Defy Bloods this time here on Cinephile. In addition to the fact, some more streaming for you. Knocked out the Kaminsky method. Michael Douglas, Alan Arkin won a Golden Globe for its first season, Best Comedy Series. Michael Douglas won Best Actor in a Comedy Series. And at the Emmys, its first season was nominated for both Michael Douglas Best Actor, Alan Arkin Best Supporting Actor. The Emmy nominations for at least Kaminsky method would be season two are coming out at the end of July. Uh, assuming we're going to have a virtual ceremony in September, but we'll see. But I knocked out all 16 episodes of the Kaminsky Method. In addition to that, a terrific documentary, courtesy of my boss, Dave Patterson, MLB Network, recommending to me because he found out I took my wife to see The Temptations back when you could see Broadway shows. That was back on Valentine's Day. All oh, those glory days just four months ago. Hitsville, The Making of Motown. It's currently on Showtime. It's a fabulous documentary. I'll talk all about that. Plus some news. Remember I was telling you, hey, Christopher Nolan's Tenet, it's going to stay July 17th. No, Warner Brothers has pushed it back. More details on that. Plus the next Matrix movie, Jim Carrey writes a book. And of course, Sopranos news. In honor of Spike Lee, the Mount Rushmore Spike Lee joints. That's right, his best movies of all time. And Total Recall is the 2009 Oscars, the films from 2008. To that end, please do give us some love on Apple Podcasts. As always, you can subscribe, rate, and review. I rank my movies at a four-way police. Please do rank the podcast out of five stars. I have said to Joe, we should wrap up Total Recall once we get done with all the, the Oscars from the years 2000 on. Right? The last 20 years, you figure after that it gets harder. If something pops in my head, if I want to do, you know, 1976 for some reason, sure, let's do it. But generally, I feel like we should be rounding third here when it comes to Total Recall. Having said that, I like this message here we got from King Crimson 61. I've listened to Adnan's movie pod since his ESPN days. Just gets better and better with enthusiasm and effortless ease. He flies through movie and streaming TV show reviews. Best reviewers are those who truly love their subjects, and he does. My favorite part of the show is when he reviews past Oscar winners. When I look back, I often say, oh, that movie or actor won the Oscar? Driving Miss Daisy, anyone? Uh, he says that too and tells you why, and I say yes. So to that point, King Crimson 61 Maybe we will continue Total Recall. Who knows? But I'll tell you this time, we're going to talk about the year that Slumdog Millionaire won Best Picture. Was it right? Was it wrong? We'll tell you all about it. As always, I like to tell the stories behind the stories. So let me tell you about Barry Sonnenfeld. How incredible was that guy? That's one of the best guests we've ever had in 131 episodes of Cinephile. And here's how it came to fruition. I saw he had done the podcast of Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing. And he was terrific. Uh, of course, our boy Horowitz from MTV. Excellent. Him and Jason, good rapport. And then I saw he did Marin's podcast. I said, okay, clearly this guy's pimping it hard. So I told Joe, reach out to Barry Sonnenfeld's people. And they come back and said, um, yeah, he can do it, but we don't have any free books. Maybe the, the books are all gone. And I'm telling Joe, hey, come on. This is the general process, right? You get a, an author on, you send you a book, you do it. We had John Pessa on. He sent me the Yogi book. I read it. Uh, you know, we had that book about the pandemic, 1918. Uh, Johnny Smith sent me the book. I read it. Great. Now they're saying no book. I said, Joe, try again. Seriously, they can't send us the book? They go, no, unless you buy the book, can't do it. And I do not like buying online. So phase two finally here in Jersey. But phase two is in Connecticut a couple weeks ago. So curbside pickup, Barnes & Noble. I buy Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother. And it was so great. I read it in two days. And that's why I emphasize at the beginning of the interview that I did pay $29 for this, as should all of you. And as Mark Simon and Alpha Hill 1 appreciated the tease that I gave for the other stuff I didn't even get into 
Because I'd said to Joe, listen, we're going to need a lot of time. He goes, well, they can do 20 to 25. I go, well, he's going to like the fact how much I read the book. So we could probably push that to 30. But we clearly could have done an hour. What an entertaining guy. Absolute character. So funny. So many great stories. Stories that I forgot to even tease. Robert De Niro was originally cast in Big. He was going to be the lead in Big. Think about that. Did that not just blow your mind right now? And the producer, I'd have to look again who it was, Barry mentioned the book, said, no way, I cannot picture De Niro as a man-child. Let's hold off until we can get Tom Hanks. And that's how Tom Hanks ended up being the role. I also now listen to Barry on Mark Maron's podcast. It's about an hour long, WTF, of course. He tells a very funny story there. I wish I'd known this. I probably wouldn't have asked it because I like to stay apolitical. But he told a story about firing Donald Trump. So if you want to hear that story, it's very funny. It's on Mark Maron's podcast, WTF. He, he was working with Donald Trump on a commercial. And as you could expect, the Donald had a strong ego and Barry Sonnenfeld was not going to take that. But clearly, a very entertaining guest. Joe, I must have sent that podcast to at least 30 of my friends saying, hey, do me a favor. This is not just uh, self-promoting. This is not just trying to get the numbers up. I really do honestly think this guy's hilarious. And not often do I listen to the podcast, but I actually went back and listened to the interview. And every answer was funny, wasn't it? Every single one. And he had so many stories from his long career. The Danny DeVito story was my favorite one. And then also the uh, Tommy Lee Jones story where he just kept making the pew noises with um, the guns on Men in Black. Those two were my favorite. And I recommend that everyone go back and listen to that interview from last week. Absolutely. My friend Scott Spinelli also at MLB Network said that uh, he's a big fan of Wild Wild West. Maybe I should rephrase. Scott said he doesn't think it's as bad as everyone says it is. I have not suffered through Wild Wild West because I hear it's atrocious. Uh, the book does not make any mention of it, so clearly Barry's not proud of it, but I believe on the podcast with our boy Horowitz, he does talk about it. If you're curious, he says, basically the issue is that Kevin Klein is a big ego, and he didn't realize, you know, when Barry told us that whole story about one guy has to be funny and one guy has to be second banana, Kevin Klein would not do that. He did not realize Will Smith is supposed to be the funny guy. So Will had to end up being the sidekick. Kevin Klein was the ham, so to speak. And that was just didn't work. Although, although Barry says nothing bad ever about Will Smith. He adores Will Smith, who calls him Baz. He also says the problem was that Kenneth Branagh and Kevin Klein both think they're the greatest Shakespearean actors alive. So literally, they'd be quoting Shakespeare to each other, trying to outduel each other, which is a very funny image. Once again, thanks to Barry Sonnenfeld for doing the podcast. If you haven't listened to it, go check it out. I promise it is worth your time. To Spike Lee we go. Defy Bloods on Netflix came out this past Friday. It's the reunion of a squad who served in Vietnam together, reuniting to head back to find some lost gold. I saw Spike Lee hyping up the movie on Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. As soon as he mentioned the lost gold, I said, oh, I think I know where this is going. And it's all ends of the spectrum, these four guys. One is a successful businessman. While the most interesting guys played by Spike Lee regular Delroy Lindo. That's right. You remember him from Malcolm X playing a numbers runner and a gangster who's uh, teaching a young Malcolm Little. He's also tremendous in clockers, playing a drug dealer. And in this instance, he's a black man who supports Donald Trump while wearing a MAGA hat. He rants about too many immigrants. The other three guys are like, come on, man, they got you too. And there's a very funny clip they show of uh, <laughs> one of Donald Trump's rallies where you see the guy in the background say, you know, black lives or black people I even just support Trump and Trump's reference to it. So Lindo's playing the outlier here. He's also battling a sense of PTSD, very serious. 
It culminates in a volcanic outburst against a Vietnamese man trying to sell him chickens on an adjacent boat. And for the record, that guy is so irritating and so aggressively obnoxious, I would have also lost my mind. And thankfully, I've not served in any wars. I'm amazed how well Delroy Lindo keeps it together. Eventually, he loses it. And that whole sequence, I mean, it really touches on the fact the war never leaves you. This is not a new concept. Certainly, I've seen this in other war movies or war uh, books and such. But the way he convincingly portrays the fact that war hasn't left him, just even the sight of a Vietnamese man, it conjures up some awful, awful memories. And of course, Vietnamese have thoughts of Americans saying, no, you're a GI, you're a GI, you know what we did, you killed my father, you killed my family. Regardless, the four guys, they strike of the old Aponchi and very French Jean Renault, and a former love of the character played by Clark Peters, he's always a good actor. And thus, it is Spike's Treasure of the Sierra Madre. That's what I thought of. When I said lost gold, I said, oh, this has got to be Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And in fact, it culminates in a scene in which the one guy, I believe it's Clark Peters, says to the Vietnamese guy, hey, where's your badges? And of course, if you've seen Treasure of the Sierra Madre with Humphrey Bogart, the famous line is, we don't need no stinking badges. Here he says, where's your official badge? He goes, we don't need no stinking official badges. It's such a funny line, very self-referential. Before that, also, there's an homage to Apocalypse Now, the best sequence of that movie, the ride of the Valkyries, that thrilling assault from the helicopters to Robert Duvall saying, I get you a case of beer for that one, and that music from Wagner. That sequence was thrilling. Here in this instance, Spike's almost making fun of the use of the music as the boat is slowly going along the river. And you can hear, obviously, that famous music used by Francis Ford Coppola. Some of the action scenes I don't think are, are Spike's strong suit, especially when in the flashback scenes, the current actors are playing their younger selves without makeup or de-aging. So you see a whatever 60-plus Delroy Lindo imagining as if he's back in Vietnam when he was 30, but he, of course, looks 60, and he's back with the member of their squadron who actually perished. That would be Chadwick Boseman. You know him, you love him. Uh, clearly, Netflix must have just buried the budget on uh, The Irishman because they could not afford any de-aging. I believe Spike even made reference to that to say, listen, we didn't have the money. So I'm like, whatever, you guys are playing yourselves. You're not going to get younger actors. We're not doing makeup. Just do it. It's just a little bit of suspension of belief. Like all of Spike Lee's movies, I found it very passionate. He begins with that clip of Muhammad Ali famously saying, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong. He takes shots at Tricky Dick along the way, and of course, Nixon and Lyndon B. Johnson, and their support of Vietnam, and very tellingly points out the fact that African Americans were only 13% of the population in America during the war, yet 32% was the amount of soldiers who were black in Vietnam, almost three times the number, which is just awfully, awfully sad why they were fighting when they did not have all those equal rights back home. Like the worst of Spike Lee's movies, at times it's messy, and yes, it's long, two hours and 25 minutes. At times it's a little bit unfocused, but it's nice to see a film about black Vietnam. You know, you don't really see many of these movies, with the exception of perhaps Dead Presidents, because of the fact it's passionate and a tremendous Delroy Lindo performance and a reminder of what a good actor he is. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. Check out Spike Lee's Defy Bloods, currently on Netflix. Joe, I know you saw it. What'd you think? I really liked it. I think if anyone out there, if you're a Spike Lee fan, I would definitely recommend this movie. Delroy Lindo, when he, I, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but when he's, you know, walking through the jungle by himself, having a moment, he he plays that so well. But to your point about the flashbacks, when I was watching it, you're right, it kind of took me out of the movie, and it reminded me of The Irishman, when we were talking about that, where... Mark Scorsese had to tell Robert De Niro, hey, you're, you're, you're supposed to be 24 in this. You need to get up out of this chair like a 24-year-old. And during those flashbacks, these are like clearly men in their 60s and 70s, you know, pretending to be you know, 20 years old and move like that. But I thought it was passionate. 
and a history lesson too. I could totally see myself being a, a civics teacher or a social studies teacher and showing this in my high school class just to, you know, give a base reference for Vietnam, the role of African Americans in Vietnam, all of that. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, there was a stretch that there was a lot of Vietnam movies. Uh, Joe's about a decade younger than me. So I remember after Platoon, there was Hamburger Hill and Full Metal Jacket. And it was like, okay, Vietnam films, of course, Oliver Stone, Born on the Fourth of July, Heaven and Earth. Like, for God's sakes, he served in the war and did a trilogy of films about it. But then, you know, those movies kind of be- came away from there. There weren't as many. It's like, how much more can you explore this terrain? So it's interesting to see Spike Lee find a different angle that he can still approach similar material. And that's why Defy Bloods, I think, is effective. And I agree with you, Joe. I think it's uh, definitely a history lesson and something that young people can certainly learn from. Uh, speaking of young people, that has nothing to do with Kaminsky Method. It's all about a bunch of oldies. I, I think this is a, a very genial show for geriatrics. That's my blurb. If I was an actual critic, I could say genial for geriatrics. It stars the great Michael Douglas, Academy Award winner for Wall Street. He was once suave. He still got that great flowing mane of hair. I got to tell you, with my receding hairline, every day I'm pissed about my hair. I watch Michael Douglas. I go, God, that's good hair for a guy who's 70 years old and battled cancer. Uh, Douglas in the show is a guy who never really made it big as an actor, but is an excellent acting teacher. His name is Sandy Kaminsky, and the Kaminsky Method is the acting class that he teaches. And as Alan Arkin once tells him, the reason you never made it big was because you're such a great acting teacher. All those casting directors were scared of you. The directors were scared of you. They knew that you're smarter than them. And Douglas goes, really? And Arkin goes, no, I'm just telling you that to make you feel better. But anyways, he's past his prime, so to speak. Now he's older. He's besieged by his prostate and frequent urination. Danny DeVito shows up in one scene. Of course, old friends, you may or may not know, Michael Douglas produced One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. Kirk Douglas actually wanted to star, and it was too old, so he gave it to his son to produce it. Michael Douglas produced it. Of course, Jack Nicholson stars McMurtry, and Danny DeVito has a small role in it. He and... uh, Douglas have been friends for years, War of the Roses, uh, Jewel of the Nile, all that stuff. So DeVito shows up as a urologist. He has the unenviable task of sticking his finger up the star's ass, and Douglas has to ask him, why'd you want to be a urologist anyways, which actually leads to a very funny scene. Alan Arkin shows up. If you had to guess what role is Alan Arkin playing, you'd be right if you said, let me guess, gruff curmudgeon, similar to Little Miss Sunshine, for which he won an Oscar. That was a big upset at the time over Eddie Murphy for Dreamgirls. Also Argo, of course, which won Best Picture. Douglas's love interest is played by Nancy Travis. She's always uh, alluring and charming. And Arkin, at least for the first season, is mainly grieving the death of his wife, who uh, very early on you see that she is stricken. The second episode she dies, which leads to a couple of cameos. One from Jay Leno, nice to see Jay pop up, and Barbara Streisand in drag. That's right, a man dressed up as Barbara Streisand. The first season, it's about 30 minutes apiece each episode, sitcom style, eight episodes total. It's a lot of hackneyed ideas. Not only the frequent urination, which you can expect, getting old, all that kind of stuff. Can I still get it up? I got to take Cialis. But also a, like a hackneyed idea, like if a guy is friends with a girl, he's gay. Like that kind of stuff just isn't very interesting to me. So I plow through the eight episodes of season one. I said, okay, I guess I can understand how this one best comedy series, Golden Globes. The Globes love stars. Michael Douglas is, of course, a big star. He's back, of course, off the off the air. People know he battled cancer. It was very sad, very terrifying. He's talked about the fact it literally burned his throat for years, he says. So listen, the Globes like a good comeback story. Hey, let's give it uh, best comedy series. Douglas gets best actor. Away we go. As I said to my man Ben Lyons last week, it's gotten so bad this pandemic i'm now binge watching the kaminsky method please help but a funny thing happened on the way to the forum i said you know what i'm so bored let me just see what happens in season two it's also eight episodes they're 25 minutes a piece like why not and the second season 
is not only demonstrably funnier, but also more resonant. It's funnier for a variety of reasons, one of which is, okay, I, the first season, I've always seen Alan Arkin being the sarcastic, gruff guy, but now it's a little bit different because Jane Seymour, yes, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, she shows up as Arkin's long-ago flame, and that gives his character a different arc. Paul Reiser. Mark Simon loves him because he's in love with Mad About You. He's unrecognizable. He shows up bald with a ponytail, looks at least 30 pounds heavier. He's a hippie dating Michael Douglas's daughter. Uh, Douglas is about 70 in the show. Riser plays 66, and he's dating Douglas's daughter, who's probably late 30s, maybe 40. And then Kathleen Turner. How about this? Uh, way back, way back playback. She's now bloated, gets nothing more than a glorified cameo, but has a very funny scene playing Michael Douglas's ex-wife. And there's a winking nod to War of the Roses, which I very much enjoyed. It's not only a show, as you can tell by my explanation, it's a show for old people, but it's also for people who have seen a lot of shows about old people and enjoy nostalgia. People like me who say, hey, how about this farewell trip around the bases for a couple actors? Who knows how much longer we're going to have Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin. And Douglas, to his credit, rings some real pathos from his cancer diagnosis in season two, which he battled in real life. And Paul Reiser is nothing short of a revelation. At first, I said, this is a bit of stunt casting. He looks a lot fatter and he's lost his hair. I had to quickly Google and say, what the hell's happened to Paul Reiser? He still does look like he did in Whiplash. He still has his hair and he's still thin. Clearly for the role, must have worn a fat suit or something. But especially after his own health scare, that causes him to reassess his life in season two. He takes Sandy's acting class and he delivers what might be the best scene of the entire show. He gives an impassioned monologue about life's regrets. And the way that both actors play it, Douglas says, we have a new actor in the class. Come on up here. He doesn't say it's my daughter's boyfriend, of course. He just says, come on up here. And, and Riser's using that familiar tactic of just being kind of silly and being self-deprecating. And Douglas pushes him and pushes him. Says, no, no tell us what you're really here. Why are you here? And he starts talking about his life. And I got to tell you, I did not think Paul Riser had that kind of depth of dramatic acting. But it was absolutely fabulous. And Alan Arkin, as I mentioned, he shows a different side in love, but also reconciling with his daughter, who has been an addict all her life. And as so often happens in these situations, you oftentimes want to blame the addict. And certainly she's culpable and she's responsible for her actions as a drug addict, an alcohol abuser, someone who stole money from her father. She's now working in a frozen yogurt store, out of rehab to prove that she can go straight. But Arkin realizes he is also complicit. And that's what often happens with families who suffer from addiction. It's not only the addict, but it's the people around them. And as he points out, maybe I could have been nicer. Maybe I couldn't have been so angry all the time. Maybe I shouldn't have been so disappointed in you. And that led to you acting out. Let's be honest. Sitcoms have become out of fashion. And with creator Chuck Lorre's impact, you know right away, yep, Chuck Lorre, if you know his name, yes, this is, of course, a sitcom. But it's a sitcom with foul language. There's no laugh track and not a traditional multi-camera setup. And rather than 22 episodes, we used to be so labored in the past of sitcoms, it is only eight episodes. I got to be honest, when it comes to the Kaminsky method, I didn't laugh a lot, but I did smile a lot. And especially the final episode of season two, episode eight, which takes a lot of dead aim at Scientology, I was not only laughing, but also clapping. Three Maple Leafs for the Kaminsky method. I'm as surprised as anyone, Joe. I actually like this show. Yeah, you just turned me around on this show completely. I, I didn't watch it. Not not because I thought, you know, Alan Arkin and Michael Douglas, you know, two old guys in, in the twilight of their career or anything like that. I watched it because of Chuck Lorre because I don't really like his sitcoms. So I just thought it was going to be like easy jokes, that kind of thing. But it seems like there's a lot of depth to this and that Michael Douglas kills it. Do you, do you think that there will be a uh, season three? 
I think so. I think they kind of just figured, why not? Let's give this a chance. You know, everyone's streaming. Netflix wants content. And all of a sudden, season one, like I said, wins a Golden Globe, best comedy. Douglas wins a Golden Globe. The Emmys, they get nominated for a couple. I think season two will get nominated again. I think best actor, Douglas, best supporting actor, Arkin. And who knows? Maybe James Seymour, Rise or Crash the Party as well. So I would think there's going to be a season three because there's enough material there. And, and again, I, I don't blame you if you look at this and say, oh my God, what is this, grumpy old men for TV or uh, golden girls for men? I had the same reservations, and definitely there are easy jokes in that direction, particularly in the first season, but it's an easy watch, and sometimes it's good for the brain to turn it off a little bit. It's an easy watch. They're very likable actors, and like I said, season two was demonstrably better, so I was, I was pleasantly surprised. I really was. All right, I'll check it out. But I mean, also, they should just make Grumpy Old Men for TV, too, because I'm a huge Grumpy Old Men fan, too, so I'll watch that. <laughs> yeah, if only we could bring back Jack Clement and Walter Matthau uh, for that kind of stuff. That is the Kaminsky Method. One more review before we get to some entertainment news, and that is Hitsville, USA. Props to Dave Patterson, my boss. He said, oh, you love Motown? You'll love this. Are you kidding? Fantastic. Barry Gordy, the man when it comes to Motown. He's the guy who created the whole thing. He and Smokey Robinson go back to Hitsville, USA, which is a small museum in Detroit. That's right. That's why it's called Motown. And that's where the birth of all those great records came to be. Not only, of course, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, but also the Temptations, the Supremes, Martha and the Vandellas, the Marvelettes, Marvin Gaye. The list goes on and on and on. Years ago, me and my boy Cabby, we were covering the Final Four 2009, which was in Detroit. And on a day off, he's okay, let's go see the Motel Museum. What, what else is there to do in Detroit? All due respect. I couldn't believe it. They actually had it closed because the museum is closed on Mondays. One of the stupidest things I've ever seen. March Madness, for those who are not college basketball fans, the Final Four is always on the Saturday. Sunday, there's nothing. Then Monday's the national championship. I could not believe it was closed. Maybe we went on a Sunday and it was closed. But I'm like, gee, you have so many people visiting. What else is there going to do in Detroit? You got 70,000 fans here. Oh, let's go check out Hitsville. No, closed. So I'm still pissed about that. It is, but we actually went there just to go see it. It is literally a two-story house. It's amazing to think the birth of such great music came from that spot. And the storytelling here is fantastic. You know, Barry Gordy talks about that Motown sound. Wherever you go, it's just a sweet, pleasant sound. And he said, the key is the opening. You got to hit him with the first four bars and the eight bars. You know, think about the four top sugar pie honey bunch. It's dun, 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 You're sweet. Boom. You know, think about uh, the way you do the things you do. Temptations. Dun, 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 dun. Boom. One of the best sequences of the entire documentary is when they talk about My Girl. And for those that don't realize, yes, it's the Temptations, but smoke. Robinson wrote it. And as he said, he goes, every time people ask me, wait, you wrote My Girl? Don't you regret the fact you didn't keep it for yourself? But he says, as hokey as it sounds, this was a family atmosphere. We were all helping each other. He said, I, I wrote stuff for the Supremes. And specifically, My Girl, you know, I loved Ruffin, the lead singer. I just thought his voice would be great for this. And I came up with it. And the scene where he's actually sitting at the piano and comes up with, you know, this, this the basic piano. And then um, one of the Funk Brothers who, of course, was on the guitar, he said he was there with him and just started screwing around. goes, boom, 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 and Smokey, and he goes, no, 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 yes, 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 that's it, that's the song. He said that's one of the most famous guitar riffs of all time, and later on, they added the strings and the violins, and I mean, who the hell doesn't like my girl? Honestly, if you don't like Motel music, you might as well be a communist. That music will put a smile on your face all the time, and there was also some political overtones to it as well. 
Um, early on, of course, it was sweet music. You know, Martha and the Vandellas, who doesn't love dancing in the street? She was a secretary. She just jumped in one day. Hey, who, we need a singer. Martha, can you do it? I'll do it. All of a sudden, you got dancing in the street. You know, the Supremes, Barry Gordy was dating Diana Ross at the time. They had a relationship, and they had a series of records that bombed. Literally, they go, hey, how come we can't make these girls work? Record after record wasn't working. Smokey wrote a song for them. Others wrote songs for them. And then all of a sudden, they started to hit, and Baby Loves a Huge Hit, and Come See About Me, and all the rest of it. The second half of the documentary is interesting because it then focuses how Motown became more political. And Marvin Gaye said, listen, I'm going to write what's going on, which is about what? Law enforcement taking liberties with African-Americans. Oh, what a surprise. That is still relevant today. It was about the war in Vietnam. It was about senseless violence. It was discrimination and prejudice. And Barry Gordy said, you can't do this. Marvin Gaye says, why not? And he said, this is against the Motown sound. We want fun, light music. And Marvin Gaye said, no, no, you taught us to do music from the heart. I, I can't just keep playing along <clears throat> and doing sweet music. If that's not what I'm about, I got to do this. And Barry Gordy said it's one of the few times in his career he was absolutely wrong and Marvin Gaye was absolutely right. And what's going on is one of the biggest Motown records of all time. The Temptations released Cloud Nine, which is about drug use. And Barry Gordy said, no, 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 we can't have Motown records supporting drug use. And they said, man, get with the times. It's the late 70s. Cloud Nine, one of the biggest hits ever by The Temptations. And just to circle back to my girl for a second, the Beatles literally had five number one hits just over and over and over. And my girl finally ended that stretch. And one of the members of the band says, you know, I saw the telegram that we got from the Beatles saying, hey, congratulations, you guys finally knocked us off the perch, which was very, very cool. Uh, the storytelling is excellent. You're not focusing on the negative parts of Motown. I'm sure there was some, of course, drug use, all the rest of it. But it's a nice, nostalgic look back at a sweet sound that I think we could all use right now, music that certainly endures. Uh, you look at Hannah Flint from Time Out. She wrote, it's far more clean cut than Motown's origins ever were. But if you're a sucker for the hits of the 60s and 70s, this is a nostalgic temptation you don't want to miss. Kath Clark of Guardian, the movie hangs in the good-natured charm of Gordy and Robinson fondly reminiscing. And Ed Potton of Times UK, Benjamin and Gabe Turner's documentary is an unashamed love bomb with Stevie Wonder and Little Richard laying it on thick and much backslapping between Gordy and his best friend, Smokey Robinson. I didn't even mention uh, Stevie Wonder, by the way. John Legend of the documentary says, Stevie Wonder is the greatest musical artist of all time, period. And Dr. Dre talks about the influence of Motown. He said, yeah, of course. What Barry Gordy did, that made me want to do what I could do. And you look at you know, Death Row Records, you look at all these record companies that guys ended up doing, it was very much influenced by Barry Gordy, who was a pioneer, and he saw the forest for the trees. Hitsville, the making of Motown, currently on Showtime. It was released last year for Maple Leafs. I loved it, Joe. Uh, Adnan, I'm, I'm driving to Michigan in a week, and now I'm like seriously considering making a detour to Motown on my way there. Um, <laughs> also, real quick, I just want to say the, the Five Bloods, for anyone listening, and another reason to watch it is because the, a lot of the soundtrack is Marvin Gaye songs. Yes. Who Do you have a favorite Motown artist, or is there one specific Motown artist that has resonated with you throughout the years that you keep listening to? I would say it's The Temptations and Smokey Robinson. Those two for me. If I go group, I go Temptations. If it's artist, I go Smokey Robinson. Tears of a Clown, Tracks of My Tears. You can't get enough. Mickey's Monkey, all that stuff is great. Can't go wrong with that. Can't go wrong with that. The Temptations were absolutely incredible. And Smokey Robinson, what can't you say about him? Him and Barry Gordy, the team that they created, so, so good. Yeah, the Temptations musical we saw on Broadway back on Valentine's Day. Uh, hopefully, once Broadway comes back in September, you got to see it. it. It won a Tony Award for Best Choreography, unsurprisingly, because the Temptations, their moves were so good. But you talk about a spectacular show. 
I miss Broadway shows like everybody else. Uh, before we get to the news, I did want to read a couple of those reviews there about the Kaminsky Method. Matt Rausch of TV Insider, Douglas, a Golden Globe winner and Emmy nominee, shines throughout arc and gets the richest material this season. He's talking about season two. Sophie Gilbert of The Atlantic. It's not that the P-Talk isn't entertaining per se. It's that the series tends to mistake it for the kind of ongoing plotting and narrative fodder that can sustain eight episodes. There she is criticizing that first season. I wouldn't disagree. Eric Deggins of NPR. Creator Chuck Lorre hits a career high. Crafting stories rooted in the pain of loss and aging delivered by stars whose deft touch is informed by over a century of acting experience between them. Makes me realize the reviews that we did, it's all about some old people looking back. Defy Bloods is about Vietnam vets looking back. The Kaminsky Method is about a couple of guys in Hollywood looking back. And of course, Hitsville is a couple of great geniuses in music looking back. Coming up next, entertainment news and the Mount Rushmore Spike Lee joins Plus. We repick the 2009 Oscars for this week's Total Recall. So previously on Cinephile, I mentioned Tenet, July 17th. Can't wait. That's when I can go back to the movies. Well, not so fast. Christopher Nolan's highly anticipated espionage thriller has pushed back its theatrical debut by two weeks. So the $200 million film is going to go now debuting July 31st. It was expected to be July 17th. They're going to re-release one of Nolan's biggest hits, Inception, by the way, in honor of its 10th anniversary. Warner Brothers also postponing Wonder Woman 1984 nearly two months was supposed to be August 14th. Now it's October 2nd. The sequel, Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot. Just love saying that name. The film was originally set to kick off summer on June 5th. How about that? From June 5th to August 14th to October 2nd. Warner Brothers overhauling a lot of stuff. In the Heights, Lin-Manuel Miranda. That musical is now June 18th, 2021. Robert Pattinson's The Batman, June 25th, 2021. And Scoob, which is an animated film based on Scooby-Doo, is on digital rental services. Also, the Matrix, Warner Brothers moving its untitled fourth Matrix film back nearly a year. The spring of 2022, it's been in production in Germany before it stopped. May 21st of next year, it was supposed to come out. You'll have to wait till April 1st, 2022. Good news is, Keanu Reeves is back, as is Carrie Ann Moss and a slew of others, including Neil Patrick Harris, Doogie Hauser is in this. And we're going to have to pull our best to try to get this author on. Jim Carrey announcing his new semi-autobiographical novel, Memoirs and Misinformation, has found its ideal audiobook narrator, Carrey's old pal, Jeff Daniels. Daniels took the job at Carrey's explicit request, and so the audio sample of Daniels reading the book is a description of an unnamed but obvious Donald Trump keeping a horde of women to beat up in his Las Vegas penthouse. Carrey's book centers itself on Jim Carrey an insanely successful and beloved movie star drowning in wealth and privilege, but he's also lonely. Accompanied by Nicolas Cage and Charlie Kaufman, <laughs> the book sees Carrie pursue Oscar greatness and a new romance in apparently equal measure while the end of the world looms. I cannot wait for this book. I, listen, Joe, I've read 10 books in 13 weeks of the pandemic. This would be an incredible coup if we can get Jim Carrey here to talk on Cinephile about his book. That would be amazing, especially with his... Just where he's gone in the last 10 years of his career, and he's painting more, he's been been more political. As long as his book doesn't mention Dumb and Dumber 2, I'm good. I'll be there for the for the book. <laughs> as much as I love Jim Carrey, I avoided that one like the plague. And now an impromptu bada binge. Mm. 
the butter binge. So I don't understand this. Uh, the series finale of The Sopranos was last week, the 13th anniversary. The show concluded in 2007. And no less than about five people sent me this story. And I said, yeah, I already know. I read the book, The Sopranos Sessions. We used it here on Cinephile for the Bada Binge. Matt Zoller cites and Alan Seppel I've interviewed in our previous episode of Cinephile. Check it out when the book was released. So I don't know why everyone was talking about it now. But this story was making the rounds and it's already in the book. So I already knew about this. But in case you didn't know about it, here it is. Co-author of the book, Alan Sepinwall, asked David Chase, the creator, when you said there was an end point, you don't mean Tony at Holstein's. You just meant, I think I have two more years worth of stories left in me. Chase answered, yes, I think I had that death scene around two years before the end. The co-author, Matt Zoller cites, acknowledged the slip up to Chase saying, you realize, of course, you just referred to that as a death scene. Chase responded to both of them, F you guys. Attempting to walk back the comment, Chase later said he had changed his mind and didn't want to do a straight death scene, reported USA Today. He also addressed not giving fans a definitive answer on Tony's fate. I don't know if that's my job. They've interpreted the scene that way. That should be a good thing, but there's different interpretations. The Soprano Sessions, by the way, available for purchase big stores everywhere. The Many Saints of Newark will hit theaters March 12, 2021. Even if, Joe, he says it's a death scene, well, yeah, I'm still clinging to the theory is it's the death of the viewer. Again, it's all about the POV, point of view. It's Tony watching everything happening, and then when it's us watching Tony, it cuts to black. He doesn't get whacked. We get whacked, just as Tony and Bobby earlier were talking about death and said, oh, I'm sure it's kind of like it just kind of goes to black. When Silvio sees that death scene, right, there's no audio, there's no sound. He just sees the murder everywhere. So is there a death scene? If there is, it's the death of the viewer, and Chase later did walk it back. So if it is Tony's death, he's never going to tell, right? I think so. And to, to David Chase's point, too, the interpretation, I think, is one of, for the last episode, specifically the last scene, is one of the catalysts, I think, to The Sopranos' longevity. Uh, the series is great as a whole, but people still talk about that last scene. So I think it should be opened up to interpretation, and I'm glad that he he vocalized that. But, you know, Tony, Tony people still debate it to this day. Yeah, could you imagine to be doing during COVID-19? What would have thought that would be? <laughs> All right, uh, that is your news. Now it's time for Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore. All right, Mount Rushmore, Spike Lee joins. I will quickly read through all of this great filmmaker's movies. She's Gotta Have It, School Days, Do the Right Thing, Mo Better Blues, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X, Crooklyn, Clockers, Girl Six, Get on the Bus, He Got Game, Summer of Sam, Bamboozle, 25th Hour, She Hate Me, Inside Man, Miracle at St. Anna, Red Hook Summer, Old Boy, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, Chirac, Black Klansman, Defy Bloods. Two movies with duh in the last six years. Spike Lee's one of my favorite filmmakers, but how about the fact he had 12 years? I mean, while 12 Years of Slave was winning Best Picture, he had 12 years of irrelevance. After Inside Man, which was his biggest hit to date, Miracle of St. Out, 08, a terrible war film. Just brutal. Uh, 2012, Red Hook Summer, never saw it. 2013, Old Boy, the original, far better. The Sweet Blood of Jesus, never saw it. Chirac, which actually got decent reviews. I gotta be honest with you, I don't even know if I got through the whole thing. John Cusack playing a preacher, it was all over the place. Black Klansman, fabulous. Finally won him an Oscar, a competitive Oscar, best adaptive screenplay. That was 12 years of Spike trying to find his way. But there's no doubt at his best, as I said, he's one of America's great filmmakers. Do the right thing. I'm so happy Mark Simon went back and saw it. My man Dan Stanzik went and saw Malcolm X. Those are two movies, of course, 
are on the Mount Rushmore. Do the Right Thing, best movie ever about race in America, a microcosm, each of those 10 characters. It's funny and vibrant and charming and also terribly sad and pulverizing and still creates intense debate and conversation. Malcolm X, one of the great screen biopics. Martin Scorsese, who was guesting with Roger Ebert on Siskel and Ebert. They did their best movies in the 90s. Of the entire decade, Scorsese had Malcolm X as one of his favorite movies of the decades and called it a great big screen epic, as did Roger Ebert. Ebert championed the film, thought it was the best of 1992. Appalling, that movie was not nominated for Best Picture. Denzel lost Best Actor because Pacino was long overdue. It was his eighth nomination, but Denzel clearly should have won an Oscar in some alternative reality. It's an amazing story about Malcolm X because he's a guy who went through so many different iterations. He was a junkie and a drug dealer and a pimp and then found Islam and went to prison and became a radical black Muslim and then later on found more moderate Islam and tried to teach more tolerance, but by then it was too late and he was viciously assassinated. An amazing performance, not only from Denzel, who literally is uncanny as Malcolm X, but also Angela Bassett, Delroy Lindo, and a host of supporting characters. From there, it gets a little bit interesting. I'm going to go with Jungle Fever, because I think it's a very watchable movie. It's still funny. The whole concept of interracial love, you know, back in 1991, people would still give you looks. People saw me give you looks today. Who's the black guy with the Italian girl? Wesley Snipes. And Annabelle Sierra playing Angela Tucci. Frank Vincent, a Scorsese regular, playing Angie Tucci's dad. Terrible scene of domestic abuse in there. John Turturro played a terrible racist in Do the Right Thing. Here plays a very sweet love interest who's interested in a black girl, even though he's from the very Italian neighborhood of Bensonhurst in Brooklyn. Turturro's great. Um, the guy, though, of course, the movie's about is Sam Jackson. I mean, Spike really hadn't made a movie talking about the drug epidemic or crack affecting African-Americans until the Sam Jackson character, Mama, I got a brand new dance for you. Talk about great performances that should have been rewarded with Oscars. His work as Gator, amazing. And, of course, you get Ruby D and Ossie Davis, all the rest of it. So do the right thing. Malcolm X, Jungle Fever. <clears throat> uh, I'd like to give a shout-out to Get on the Bus. It's a little seen, but it's got some wonderful performances, particularly from Andre Brower. Uh, and a host of others. I mean, just the range of some of those actors in that show. That's about a bunch of guys on a bus going to see the Million Man March. Think about that. And just the stories and the images. And uh, Charles S. Dutton is terrific looking at the past he's trying to get through, why it's a redemptive tour for them. I would, I'm tempted to get Black Klansman in there, but I'm going to go with Clockers. I love the book by Richard Price. Again, talks about drug dealers and what they have to do. And I thought Spike would be one of his most mature movies with Clockers. Mackay Pfeiffer announced his arrival as an actor. Harvey Keitel playing Rocco. I thought it was actually a really smart look at, uh, at drugs and how it affects the community. And Delroy Lindo in particular, very alluring and very charismatic towards these young guys trying to lure them into that world of drugs. Um, as I said, he's got some misses along the way. No one's going to be talking about She Hate Me. Bamboozled, I like more than others. And if you want to take Jimmy Fallon the task for the whole blackface controversy, check out Bamboozled. Did not do particularly well commercially or critically, but I think it's certainly an interesting movie. It stars Savion Glover, and it goes into the whole theory of blackface. Say this about Spike. He always takes chances, pulls no punches. So shout out to Bamboozled and get on the bus. But I'm going to go with Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, Jungle Fever, and Clockers for my Mount Rushmore. Joe. I will throw in Black Klansman as my first choice on the Mount Rushmore for Spike Lee movies. I will also, just because I rewatched it this weekend, uh, Malcolm X. It's it's Denzel at his best. I think it's it's his best role. It's so intense. I'll throw that on there, and then I will go with He Got Game. Jesus Shuttleworth, Young Ray Allen. Who who doesn't love that? And then finally, 
of course, I will go with do the right thing. Adnan, you know he, I live here in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. You know when quarantine's over, you have to come out here, and we got to go see the do the block where do the right thing was shot. What do you say? No question about that, my man. Uh, this summer, we are definitely going to go check it out in honor of do the right thing. Cinephile on location in Bed-Stuy as me and Joe get to hang out. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned he got game two. My boy RT loves that movie. Good father and son story. Of course, Spike loves basketball. I thought Ray Allen, is, you know, if you did a Mount Rushmore of athletes – uh, playing actors or actors as athletes, whatever the hell I'm trying to say. Ray Allen, I thought was very good in that performance and uh, the whole stuff with him and Denzel and trying to redeem their past. Very, very good movie. I agree. He got game. Special movie as well. I'm glad you mentioned it. Spike Lee, he's a beauty. Now it's time for Total Recall. Total Recall. All right, Total Recalls. We're trying to get all the Oscars done from this millennium, then we may retire this segment. 2009 Oscars. These are the movies from 2008. Best Picture was Slumdog Millionaire. Who else was nominated, Joe? We have The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Frost, Nixon, Milk, and The Reader. My first thought is, wow, this was a bad year for movies. But, of course, that's because some of the best ones they didn't nominate. Where the hell is Doubt for Best Picture? Where is The Wrestler for Best Picture? Where is The Visitor for Best Picture? So of this list, uh, I like Slumdog Millionaire. It's definitely charming, and it's got a lot of good moments to it. It was not my favorite of the year. Benjamin Button's a little long for me. Milk, definitely impassioned. The Reader is a much better book. Uh, this goes back to Kate Winslet when she was on extras of Ricky Gervais saying, of course, I'm going to do a Holocaust movie one day. I'm going to win an Oscar and it's getting nominated for Best Picture. More on Kate Winslet in a second. I'll go with Frost Nixon. Terrific two-hander. I mean, Frank Langella as Nixon is amazing. Michael Sheen playing David Frost. Two guys going back at it. I thought it was smartly directed. Terrific script. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. Brian Grazer, Ron Howard, Eric Fellner, producers of this list. That would be my Best Picture. I agree with you. I would go with Frost Nixon, too. It's uh, great. I know at some point we're going to do the Mount Rushmore of people to play presidents, so uh, I think that movie will be focused on for that. But, yeah, I would agree with you and go with Frost Nixon. All right, best director was Danny Boyle for Slumdog Millionaire. Who else was nominated? David Fincher for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Ron Howard for Frost Nixon, Gus Van Zant for Milk, and Stephen Daldry for The Reader. Well, definitely not the reader, as I've uh, explained here, that the book was better than the movie. Gus Van Sant definitely does, does a good job with Milk, telling the biopic of Harvey Milk, who was a gay politician in San Francisco who dealt with a lot of abuse and discrimination, was able to overcome a lot of that. It's definitely one of those good screen biopics. Uh, although I just said Frost Nixon should be best picture, I don't think it's Howard's best work, directorially speaking, but very sturdy and strong. Fincher, I totally forgot he directed The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. That, that surprises me. But I will go with Danny Boyle. He's been a really good director. Uh, I love train spotting. And the best part of Slumdog Millionaire, I do think, is the directing. It's got a real energy to it and a real vibrancy, uh, telling the story about this kid in India, what he's trying to overcome, and the poverty and the sadness. And it's very well done visually. So I will agree with the Academy. Danny Boyle, best director. I like that. I will go with Gus Van Zant from Milk, mainly because I think he should have won for Goodwill Hunting. But... Um also, just his insane, weird career doing Goodwill Hunting, then following it up with the Psycho remake. Um, he, he's done Elephant. It's more uh, an, a career achievement than why I'm giving it to him, but I'll give it to Gus Van Zant from Milk. I like it. Best actor was Sean Penn. He wins another Oscar after winning for uh, Mystic River. He won this time playing Harvey Milk. Who else was nominated? I don't agree with the win. Who else was nominated? 
Richard Jenkins for The Visitor, Frank Langella for Frost Nixon, Brad Pitt, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and Mickey Rourke, The Wrestler. As I said, Benjamin Button, I saw it, and God, I found it uh, tedious to be kind. It's definitely not going to be Brad Pitt. I love Langella. You know, if the president said it, it's not illegal. He's tremendous in that movie. The one I really want to go for is Richard Jenkins, because he's one of those career character actors. You know, he's been in Fairly Brothers movies. You see him pop up in these movies all the time. He's one of the, you know, Shape of Water, he's tremendous. Former guest, by the way, here on Cinephile. Take a listen to that. He's one of those actors, actors, who never gets nominated. He finally gets a lead role in this indie movie from Tom McCarthy. Tom McCarthy is the guy who directed Spotlight. And he gets nominated for The Visitor. And this story, this could only be made in like an independent film movement of 2008. It's about a guy who's detracted and a little bit sad and moping. And he finds an immigrant living in his place, which he hasn't been in a while. Rather than cast him out, he strikes up a friendship with the guy. His mom ends up visiting. The guy ends up teaching him how to play the drums, the bonga drums. He ends up going to Central Park playing the drums and rediscovers his life. And if you read that on the page, you'd go, who the hell wants to see this movie? And instead, Tom McCarthy, because he's such a good director and writer, uh, he makes it fascinating. And Jenkins is tremendous. I mean, the scene where he's upset about, because the story really is, is not just about one man's awakening, but also about immigration. And the scene where he's upset about the fact that these immigrants are going to be deported, it's, it's about as good as it gets from Richard Jenkins. Having said all that, I was outraged that Mickey Rourke didn't win. Mickey Rourke had disappeared from the planet. Darren Aronofsky gives him the role of a lifetime. Rourke knocks it out of the park as a sad, pathetic man looking back at his life, hooked up on, you know, juice and drugs and booze. He's pissed away everything in his life. And Mickey Rourke was incredible. He was heartbreaking. The scene is he's trying to reconcile with his daughter. The fact that he literally goes, that last scene, that's a suicide mission. He goes there to kill himself because he knows he can't live in this world anymore. That speech he gives to Marissa Tomei there is amazing. He, when he says, you know, I'm here. I'm re-, she says, I'm here. I'm really here. And he's like, no, see that? That's where I live. Here's that crowd up there. And he goes in that ring knowing with his heart condition he's going to die. But he's going to die going out on top. Mickey, I mean, that's an incredible movie. How the hell is that not nominated for Best Picture? How is Aaron Oshkin up for Best Director? That's one of the best movies of the year. Absolutely. I said at the film festival in Toronto, was blown away. Mickey Rourke should have won Best Actor. This still pisses me off, Joe. Uh, yeah, I can't believe it. Now that now that you, you've pointed it out, I can't believe The Wrestler wasn't nominated for Best Picture that year. I'm also going to go with Mickey Rourke, but just real quickly to your point on Richard Jenkins, he's so good. He also plays um, to uh, our Barry Sonnenfeld interview last week. He's the straight man in Step Brothers, and he's the only reason that Will Ferrell and John C. Riley are able just to go where they are comedically, because he plays the ultimate straight man in that. So, yeah, he's great. I love him. That's a great point. I remember not liking Step Brothers as many as others, but I do love Richard Jacobs, because you're right. He's the guy playing it straight. He's not playing it for laughs. He's treating these guys uh, as if, the, you know, there are people that he loves, and really they're just a couple of nincompoops. Best Actress with Kate Winslet for The Reader. Again, go back. Have you ever seen Ricky Gervais's extras? It's hysterical. And there's an episode where she says, one day I'm going to make a Holocaust movie, because all the Holocaust movies always win Oscars. And then she won an Oscar for playing, what is it, a Holocaust movie? That's right, The Reader, she won Best Actress. Great book, and she's a great actress, so I'm happy she won because it's been a great career. But who else was nominated? Anne Hathaway, Rachel Getting Married. Angelina Jolie, Changeling, Melissa Leo, Frozen River, and Meryl Streep for Doubt. Frozen River, again, one of those quiet indies that nobody sees, but if you see it, it's very powerful. Again, drug running, uh, Native American rights. There's a lot going on there. Melissa Leo is fantastic. I'd go with Meryl. I just watched a little bit of Doubt the other day. I love that movie. Again, how the hell is Doubt not nominated for Best Picture? What's going on here? Uh, she's amazing. Sister Aloysius, she is so convinced 
that Philip Seymour Hoffman is abusing these kids. Uh, she's just monstrous in the movie and so vigilant and also darkly funny. There's one scene where Amy Adams gets upset at her and <laughs> literally the bulb lights out. She goes, well, look at that. You blew up my bulb. I mean, there, there's within playing this monstrous woman, there's also great comedic timing. It, it is an incredible performance. I think it's one of Meryl's best. All due respect to Kate Winslet, this was a career achievement award. I'm telling you, Meryl Streep in Doubt, Sister Aloysius, Bovier, she knocks it out of the park. I love that movie. I love her performance. I, I completely agree. I, I would just because you went with Meryl, though. I will go with Melissa Leo for Frozen River. I really enjoyed that movie, and I'm surprised you, as a Canadian, didn't pick Frozen River. Yeah, you're right. I, the CanCon involved there. I probably should have gone in that direction. Best supporting actor: Heath Ledger, The Dark Knight. You think it's an all timer, right? No brainer. Well, guess what? I was really happy that he won. It's a great performance, but there's one I actually would have voted for instead. Give me the nominees, Joe. Josh Brolin from Milk. Robert Downey Jr., Tropic Thunder, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Doubt, and Michael Shannon, Revolutionary Road. Michael Shannon is one of our favorite actors here on Cinephile. The guy is the best. As Joe told me, go look up Funny or Die. Michael Shannon, it's one of the best things that you're ever going to watch. This was his first Academy Award nomination. He's not well. He's not well. Kathy Bates upset. Shannon is amazing, playing this guy who's mentally ill, who says everything that the two main characters, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, will not say. It's as if he's the audience watching everything happening and saying, no, no, no. Oh, I get it. You don't like her and she doesn't like him. It's a, a hilarious performance. I really want to go with Robert Downey Jr. His comedies never get mentioned. And Tropic Thunder, I don't think it get made today because this is a white man doing blackface. But Robert Downey Jr., I mean, the whole joke's about you can never go full retard. I mean, it is about as offensive as it gets, but it's also very, very funny. And his performance, playing a white guy, playing a black guy, I mean, listen, there's... There's lots of levels to it. I think it's fearless and funny, and comedies never get recognized. I forgot Brolin got nominated, but you know my pick? It's the great Philip Seymour Hoffman. This is seriously one of his best performances, Father Flynn. The scenes of Meryl Streep and him going back at each other, I mean, it is about as titanic as it gets. One of America's greatest actresses, and I believe one of America's greatest actors going toe-to-toe. And he is so defensive and so upset and you think, okay, he seems like a caring man, but maybe he is a pedophile. Maybe there is something in his past he's trying to hide. I don't think he's abusing this young black kid. I think he seems well-meaning, but there's something going on here. And it's a wonderful script. He plays the various shades of doubt so well. And the speech that he gives, the sermon he gives after Meryl Streep first accuses him of wrongdoing, he gives a speech about gossip. I know gossip can be so poisonous. I, I watch it again. I'm telling you, man, that guy is amazing. I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. I know he won an Oscar for Capote. I wish he also won one for Doubt. I know everyone's pissed at me now. Heath Ledger, I know it's brilliant, but I'm telling you, PSH and Doubt can't get better. Yeah, I, I, you know, I haven't seen the, the Doubt in a few years now. I definitely have to go back and rewatch it now. Philip Seymour Hoffman is incredible. I'm going to have to go with Heath Ledger, though, for The Dark Knight, just because I feel like, at least from my generation, he is the Joker. You know what I mean? And just... Pop culture that ensued after that was Heath Ledger's Joker in The Dark Knight. I know it was uh, posthumous, but I'll go with Heath Ledger. No denying, iconic performance, a great screen villain, the way he licks his lips, the way he says I'm an agent of chaos. You know, like a dog chasing his tail. I wouldn't know what to do if I caught the truck. It's really <laughs> a chilling performance, especially you know how I got this smile. Why so serious? Best Supporting Actress is Penelope Cruz for Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Who else was nominated? Amy Adams for Doubt, Viola Davis for Doubt, Taraji P. Henson for The 
Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and Marissa Tomei, The Wrestler. Well, it definitely should have been Penelope Cruz, uh, all due respect to Woody Allen comedies. It's either the ladies from Doubt, I forgot Taraji P. Henson's in Button, or Marissa Tomei. Oh, man, this is tough. Um, okay, Amy Adams is really good, but I'm going to discount her as Sister James. It's either Viola Davis for Doubt or Marissa Tomei, and I will go with Marissa Tomei, but God, Viola Davis has about 15 minutes in Doubt, and she is amazing. She is the mother of the boy who's allegedly being abused. And when she basically tells Meryl Streep she's okay with her son being abused because the abuse he's getting at home from his dad, her husband, is much more severe. And once the snot gets going and she's got tears everywhere, I mean, I, honestly, look up the screen time. Viola Davis is maybe in doubt 15 minutes, and yet she's unforgettable. Having said that, Marissa Tomei takes a stereotype, a stripper with a heart of gold, and turns it inside out. You can totally believe that a girl like this would fall for Mickey Rourke and be defensive and weary at first. And yet that scene where she's trying to convince Mickey Rourke not to go out there on stage and kill himself. It's, I think, the best acting in Marissa Tomei's career. I'd vote for her for The Wrestler. I know she won an Oscar for my cousin Vinny, but I loved her in The Wrestler. I agree with you. I'm going to go with Mr. Uh, Marissa Tomei as well for The Wrestler. For, for every, everything you said, that scene where she's talking to Mickey Rourke, all, all, all of it. She's fantastic in that movie, so I'll go with Marissa Tomei. Best original screenplay was Milk, Dustin Lance Black. I disagree. Who else was nominated? Frozen River, Courtney Hunt, Happy Go Lucky, Mike Lee, In Bruges, Mark McDonough, Wally, Andrew Stanton, Jim Reardon, and Pete Doctor. I'll let Joe go with Wally because I can already feel him going in that direction. In Bruges, I mean, that's rare to get a comedy nominated for Best Original Screenplay. And Mark McDonough was the genius who made three billboards that's in Ebbing, Missouri. So I'd actually like to go back and watch In Bruges. I, I, I liked it the first time I saw it, but I don't remember it much. So I'm a little... Uh, my eyebrow is raised. He was actually nominated for an Oscar. I'll go with Frozen River. I unfortunately did not give Melissa Leo an Oscar, but it's an innovative script. It's different. You do not see these stories told well. As Joe mentioned, my Canadian side comes out. But Native American issues, two women, drug running, uh, trying to do what they can for their families, their communities. Definitely a special movie. I'll go with Frozen River. Courtney Hunt. I like that a lot. You know what? I will go with Wally only because that is a long touching movie with 30 minutes of dialogue the entire movie totals to 30 minutes so i'll go with wally very very cool and uh best adaptive screenplay slumdog millionaire one simon Beaufoy, based on all QA by vika swore up i don't think it should have won best adaptive screenplay i'm giving it one oscar that's best director at least of these eight categories who else was nominated the curious case of benjamin button eric roth robin sitcord doubt john patrick shanley Frost Nixon, Peter Morgan, based on his stage play, and the reader, David Hare. A toss-up here. It's either Doubt or Frost Nixon. By my count, I've given Doubt Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor. So Frost Nixon, I gave Best Picture, nothing else. I will go with Frost Nixon here. Peter Morgan, based on his stage play. Because, again, it's so hard to make a really... I mean, that's a unique screenplay. You're, you're looking at a story about a former president being interviewed by a British interviewer and how through the course of those interviews, you get a real sense of what Nixon was all about and his corruption and his entitlement. And that's really, really hard to do. Having said that, John Patrick Shanley, maybe it's a bit of a cheat because it was based on his play. So I'm going to discount him there, but I'd love to see the play done on screen. That would be a close number two. I'll give it to Peter Morgan for Frost Nixon. I'm going to agree with you uh, and say Frost Nixon as well. I, I love the movie. Again, you know, I thought Slumdog Millionaire had its moments. I didn't think it was bad, but I, you know, Frost Nixon, I thought was definitely more worthy of winning the award. So I'll go with them for sure. 
I agree. People think, you know, my South Asian ancestry, they're like, oh, you must have been so happy to slum that millionaire one. I'm like, eh. I thought it was a good movie. I didn't think it was a great movie. I, I liked Frost Nixon more. I liked Doubt more. And I certainly love The Wrestler more. Thanks so much for checking on Cinephile here. I really appreciate all of you. Stay safe. Do what you got to do. Stay home. Wear a mask. Please do be smart about it. We'll be back next time here on the podcast. Uh, I'm going to review Big Little Lies. How about that? Meryl Streep, Nicole Kidman, Reese Witherspoon, 14 episodes I'm diving into right now, HBO miniseries, 2016, it was nominated for 16 Emmys, and it won eight. Season two came out last year, so we'll talk about Big Little Lies next time on the podcast. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.